I remembered some of you are waiting or you wait and look forward to cutting down trees and sitting on dad's shoulders to put the angel on or the star on top. I remembered. I began last week by encouraging you to put your pens and bulletins down and to have the freedom uh, to simply open your Bibles and follow along as we walk through the Christmas story this month. And I heard from some of you that you liked getting permission to do that and to not take notes. And of course, I know from others that, that that was very, very difficult for you. And so I want you to know that everyone in the room tonight has the freedom to either take notes or not take notes, okay? Uh, I have put the outline in the back of your bulletin tonight for those of you that just feel like you have to, uh, and that's okay. Uh, but whether you do or don't, the prayer is the same as it was last week. It's, it's my hope that God will grant all of us the expulsive power of a new affection as we walk through the story. It's my hope that as we, as we uh, spend our time, as we end chapter 1 tonight and move into chapter 2 over the next couple of weeks, that all of us will, uh, will that study will bring a new joy, uh, a new joy, a deeper joy, uh, a more lasting joy, and, and that nothing else this season will, will bring that about more so than this. And so as we... Uh, as we prepare to do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would do just that, all right? Uh, Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word that is authoritative and inerrant and sufficient, would you in these moments ahead speak to our hearts? And as we've prayed uh, last week and we'll continue, that, uh, that as, um, as your word is preached, that you would use the, the room that you create by driving the doubt of dark away to, to plant and to cultivate that new and deeper affection for Jesus. May we come to know more about him and, and his coming, and may it bring, bring a joy that is deep and lasting. I would ask that you would use me in these moments as you see fit for, uh, for the sake of Christ and his church. And it is in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. And of course, we are in Luke chapter 1. We have already sung it. As I was telling the children, we, we have already sung it. We've heard it read. Um, and I don't know about you, but the opening sentence sometimes is something that we just breeze right on by because we want to get to uh, the better things or the more interesting things or the deeper and more significant things. But we really need to pause even at verse 1 of this passage in Luke 1 and verse 57 and allow the words to sink in uh, a bit for us. So I want to read that again. Luke wrote, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Right, this birth, as we have learned, was ordained. It was a small part of a much larger plan, a larger plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption was birthed, pun intended, right? And, and planned and, um, you know, that, that foundation was set all prior to the foundation of the world. And that plan has, we've seen, was worked out over time, in time and in space, in 
um, actual objective history. It wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't, it's not a, a fairy tale. This whole story of redemption is not a fairy tale made up of a lot of little fairy tales. It did happen. And this first verse tells us so. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, um, Zechariah had been informed of this little part of this plan, and he balked. He was too busy looking at his own problems, and he therefore failed to receive the word of the Lord. He failed to believe the promises that had been made to him through Gabriel. And in this one verse, right, we're reminded how wrong he was, and we're also, we're also reminded of what God said to to, uh, to Mary when Gabriel said nothing will be impossible with God. In this one verse, we re we're reminded that God is a God of his word. He will do what he says he's going to do. He's a God of his, he is, well, I've said he's a God of his word. He's faithful and he honors the commitments that he makes. But we also know that he works according to his plan in his time. Right? Elizabeth's conception, and while extremely late as far as uh, she and her husband are concerned, it was at the right time according to the Lord. And she bore a son just as Gabriel said she would. And it was a joyous occasion. And we know that from verse 58. It says, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The unexpected love and generosity of God was on full display for her, for her family, for everyone in the village. They had been surprised initially when Elizabeth was forced out of hiding when she could no longer conceal that five-month bump. But over time, they began to be excited, but at the same time, maybe even, maybe even a little cautious because, you know, out of care and concern for both Elizabeth and the baby. Why? Because of Elizabeth's age. So when she has the baby and when she's okay and the baby's okay, they rejoice. Look what God has done. But as friends and family, and you can attest to this, as friends and family often do when circumstances are out of the ordinary or when uh, occasions of hardship might occur or we all have that one relative that just seems to be desirous of control, right? They step in and that rejoicing turned into an attempt to name the child on their behalf, Verse 59 says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And it's really odd. This, they apparently believe they need to step in because Zechariah is unable to really either hear or speak. And so to help... Right? They announce the name of the child. And, but Elizabeth, Elizabeth is emphatic. Even though they were following tradition, even though Zechariah probably should have been his name, 
Elizabeth is emphatic. She says, absolutely not. His name is going to be John. And while in the flesh, she probably, there, there might have been a part of her that was pleased at their reaction because of the, the animosity that had been created due to their audacity. She's not answering in the flesh. And none of us would have blamed her if she had. But she doesn't respond in the flesh. She responds by the Spirit. It comes from a deep sense of obligation and loyalty and love for the Lord. Why? Because the Lord had been faithful to her. She, in turn, was going to be faithful to the Lord and name the child John. So the group, of course, decide that Zechariah is apparently now able to help, that his disability must not be a hindrance, and so they begin to sign trying to get him to do what they think he should do and what, uh, what Elizabeth is failing to do. And in verse 63, he asks for a writing tablet and writes, his name is John. And they all wondered. Now, we have to think that a lot happened over those nine months that he's been waiting. He had a lot of time to think, to think about life, to think about his call in his service as a priest. He had time to think about his marriage and the years and years and years of childlessness, the years of disappointment, the years of lost hope. He had time to think of his own hypocrisy. He had time to think about how he had disappointed his wife. He had time to think about his lack of faith and his disbelief standing there in the temple when confronted by Gabriel. And being silent, being unable to speak and unable to hear, that would have been the perfect, um, it, it would have been absolutely perfect. It would have been fertile soil for him to sulk and to pout and for bitterness to take root. Some of the, sometimes the worst thing that we can do is be in our own heads and not talk things through with others. So his flesh may have wanted at that point in time to to shake his fist at God and to ask why and to be angry, to throw his hands up and give up, but he too doesn't respond in the flesh. He too responds by the Spirit. He humbles himself and he submits himself to the Lord. And he comes to a point over those nine months when he realizes he's not too old, he's not too seasoned, he's not too wise, he's not too experienced or respected to learn and grow. No one ever is. He accepted the discipline of the Lord. You know, that discipline was intended to mold him and shape him. That's what discipline does. Discipline brings us, it sanctifies us. It brings us to a place of restoration and reconciliation. And this discipline had that positive effect. Zechariah had a choice to make. He could move backward. He could move forward. He could reject. He could accept. And we see that he chose wisely. He is as emphatic as his wife was. If we were doing it today, if we were writing it today in in Luke's place, it would be John, all caps, bold-faced, italicized, and underlined three times. 
John is his name. Not would be his name. It was his name. It had been his name since that, that day in the tabernacle, or in the, in the temple. And the people marveled at what he wrote. They're beginning to catch on that something, something out of the ordinary is, is happening. This isn't an ordinary birth. It's not a typical naming. And this is, well, I was going to say this is where it gets really good, but it's been good. But verse 64, it says, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And what Gabriel had said would come to pass actually came to pass. He was told, you'll remember, he was told that he would not speak until the day that these things take place. But his ability to speak hadn't been returned after the birth. He had to wait a whole nother week for the naming. Nine months earlier, he had doubted. It, it all makes sense why he had to wait, because nine months earlier, he had doubted. And, and since then, he had, in the words of Peter, he'd been grieved by his trial, and through it, his faith had been tested by fire. And when he responded to the, to the Lord, or when he responded to the people, and he said his name would be John, that was the point where the genuineness of his faith was made evident. And the Lord responded. The Lord responded that, to that outworking of faith, and he was able to speak. And Zechariah immediately began to praise the Lord. And I have a feeling that much of, of what that was prior to him breaking into song was, that, was letting everybody know what had happened the last nine months. Let me tell you what's been going on. Let me tell you what happened in the temple. Let me tell you why I haven't been able to speak or hear. And the story that he shared had this profound impact. In verse 65, it says, And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid it up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Those who heard the story are filled with awe and wonder at the Lord and what the Lord has been doing. Right? This, is not, this is not a frivolous event to just allow to fade away. This was a display of the faithfulness and power of God. And as they pondered, they, weren't, they didn't ask, who, who is this or who is this child going to be? They said, what is this child going to be? What is this child going to do? You know, Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel, his being unable to speak or hear for nine months, Elizabeth's miraculous conception, the birth, and the naming all meant that, that this child was going to do something very, very significant out of the, outside of the norm. And the text tells us that it was blatantly obvious that God's grace and his power and his mercy and his presence were on John almost to the point where you could see it. It was as if God's, you could see God's hands visibly present on his shoulder. And because of that, the story that he shared People listened, and then they began to share it, and, and they would share it to another, and that person would share it, and that person would share it. 
and it spread far and wide. And as John Calvin once said, it was not merely for the sake of those who heard the story that God determined to spread abroad the report of those events, but to establish in all ages the certainty of the miracle which was then universally known. And that's why Luke includes it in his gospel. We have to remember why he's writing. Theophilus is doubting. And he wants him to be sure, so he writes it. He writes of this miracle to encourage and assure Theophilus. And and then also for us today, it, it, it encourages and it assures us as well. In those moments when we struggle in disbelief, because all of us, all of us in this room are are in this progression. We're progressing in our faith, and some of us are moving faster than others. Some of us are moving slower than others. Some of us are like Elizabeth. Some of us are like Zechariah. But here's the good news. No matter your speed, we are promised that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus. And we have this story to help us along the way. And that brings us to Zechariah's prophecy. Like Mary, or I'm sorry, like, yes, like Mary, Zechariah breaks into song. It's something that he can't contain, and it's a hymn that's been entitled the Benedictus, again, for the uh, first word uh, in Latin. And we don't know if it was something that he wrote over the, first, uh, over the previous nine months or if it was something spontaneous. I have a tendency to believe it was spontaneous because Luke says that he was filled with the Spirit. And so being filled with the Spirit, he breaks into song, and like Mary, his knowledge of the Scriptures is put on full display. And in verse 68, he begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, you would think being a good father, having now this ability again to speak, that he would break into song and and jump in and immediately begin praising the Lord for his own son. But he doesn't do that. We we need to remember, of course, because of his encounter with Gabriel himself and Mary having, having been with them the previous three months and having heard of her encounter with Gabriel, Zachariah understood that though his son was born first, and his son would be great before the Lord. It was Mary's son. It was Mary's son to whom he would be subordinate. Though Mary's son would be born second, John would be subordinate to him. Why? Because this child would be great. Why would he be great in and of himself? Because he was the son of God. And so Zechariah begins his praise of that one. Not only does he praise God for Mary's son, the, the one to whom John would point, but he also praises him for the work that he would do and the salvation that he would provide. 
And like Mary too, Zechariah's language is, is prophetic. And so it's, it's looking to the future, but yet it's in the past tense because it's so sure. And he says several things. First, he says that salvation comes from outside of us. Salvation comes from outside of us. Redemption is something accomplished by someone else on behalf of another. Redemption is liberation that's secured through a price that one pays on behalf of someone else. And we have not... We have not because we cannot ascend to visit the Lord and, and take our salvation. Zechariah says that the Lord has descended. He's condescended to visit us in bodily form as a man in time and in space to secure our salvation for us. He also says that this would be accomplished through the one that God had promised David. We've already read this in the last couple of weeks in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It was the one who would sit on the throne of Jacob forever. And Zechariah adds, not only is he that one, but he is going to be mighty and powerful and strong. That's the horn of salvation language that he takes from First and 2 Samuel, Psalms, and Ezekiel. He also says that this is the one, this is nothing new. As if God were starting new from scratch. This is the same salvation that the prophets of old had been speaking about throughout the Old Testament. And he said that this would be a full and complete salvation, a full deliverance from all of our enemies. And he said the purpose was twofold. The purpose was to to exhibit God's mercy as well as to enable his people to serve him without fear. And then finally he says that this was not only going to fulfill the promise to David, but it was going to fulfill the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And before we look at the second part of the song, I want us to, to make sure that we understand some, a, a very important point that's applicable for us today, I think. Um, there is, without a doubt, a, a national and political tone of emphasis in the song, just like there was in Mary's song. Um, God's people have always had enemies. There have always been those who hate them and hate us. They've... They and we have faced injustice and oppression and persecution, whether it be from the Egyptians and the Babylonians or the Romans to anti-Christian governments or people today. So when Zechariah speaks of a redemption and being delivered from the hands of our enemies, absolutely there is a physical, political, and a social aspect to it that he has in mind. We can't escape the language of verse 74. He says, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And we hear those echoes from Exodus. Echoes from chapter 6, verse 16, and 8.1, and 820, 9.1, 9.13, 10.3, in which God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they may serve me. So we need to understand that that's present, but we know that the, the exodus was typological for a spiritual exodus. So when we come to the second part of this song, 
we're going to see a stronger and more pronounced tone of spiritual liberation and freedom. There's going to be a more pronounced tone and emphasis on spiritual redemption that is not only more important but must precede any other emphasis. It must precede uh, any restoration or writing of political or social structures or the writing or reconciliation of human relationships. And so we read in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sun, sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So having praised God and blessed God, he now prayed for, for, uh, for Christ himself. He now praises God and blesses God for his own child. And really, it, 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 the feel has this blessing that the father would, would give to the firstborn, so while praising God, he's, he's blessing his own child. And he says, John's going to be a prophet, but not just any prophet. He is going to be the greatest prophet who's going to be the forerunner. He's going to come preparing a way. He's going to be preparing a people for the long-awaited and, and greatly anticipated Messiah. But notice he says that John's message is going to be a message of forgiveness of sins. John's message is going to be one of repentance, and we know that because when we first encounter John in, in a few pages, he's going to be calling people to repent and believe, fulfilling what God has called him to do. So his call is for forgiveness of sin and repentance, and that's because the deliverance the Messiah would secure was much more than physical, political, or social. It was spiritual because the human heart, the human heart is sinful and needs to be cleansed. Due to our sin, we, we are corrupt mentally and physically and morally and emotionally and volitionally and spiritually. There isn't a part of us that isn't touched by sin, and we're in bondage to our enemies of sin and death. And because of our sin, we're afraid to approach the Lord. Not to mention able to serve Him. I mean, we, we can't even serve Him because of our sin, because we love the darkness more than we love the light. But John would proclaim the coming of the Messiah that we read about in Isaiah 9. Right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. John was going to prepare the way for the light. John was going to prepare for the, the way for the light of the world, the beautiful, life-giving, truth-telling light Who would reveal and overcome the darkness of our hearts. 
who would provide light for our paths and provide much-needed peace between us and the Lord. And that peace that comes, um, that, that comes, that we experience with him brings about a peace from him. And those both serve as a basis for the peace that we experience with one another. He's come to overcome and and deliver us. We go back to the first part of the song and we realize he's come to deliver us from our enemies of the world, sin, and death. He's come to set us free and continually intercede on our behalf that we might and can boldly approach the throne of grace without condemnation and therefore without fear. John would prepare the way for our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. Wendy and I have been reading through Tim Keller's book entitled Hidden Christmas, and that along with uh, Philip Ryken's commentary Uh, Those two things are spurring my thoughts that I would like to close with tonight. Um, We live in a dark world. Sin and suffering and injustice and violence, idolatry, sensuality, poverty, homelessness, abuse of power, corruption, troubled marriages. I mean, we could go on. But it's no different than the world in which Zechariah lived. It's no different than the world in which uh, John was born into or Jesus was born into. And people today, just like they were in Isaiah's day, when you go back in chapter 8, and just like they were in Zechariah's day, mankind continues to look to themselves, mankind looks, continues to look to ourselves as if we have the desire and ability and intellect and compassion and creativity to fix the problem. Somehow there's this idea that, that utopia is possible and that utopia will be characterized by unity and peace. And it's possible that right now, if we just work together, if we just set aside our differences, and if we just love one another, as if that the light somehow is within us, that it emanates within us. And it's this time of year that we hear this, and I mentioned this last week. It's like, if we'll just believe in the season, somehow all of that will be possible. But this is foreign to the real message of Christmas. What Christmas should actually remind us of each and every year is that humanity cannot save itself. We cannot save ourselves. As a matter of fact, the more we look to ourselves, the darker the world gets. Christmas actually says the problem is much more severe 
than you or I can imagine or can fix, no matter how hard we try. The light does not emanate from within us. Here's the sunrise language. It dawned from outside of us. It dawned. It was, it was like a sunrise. We needed God to take on flesh and to tabernacle and to dwell among us so that he might live the life that we are unable to live that he would die in our place, taking our sin upon himself, being that pure and holy and righteous sacrifice that's pleasing to God on our behalf. He came to redeem us. He came to set us free from the enemies of sin and death in the world. He came as a servant. He came to willingly and humbly lay down his life to right that which was wrong in us and around us. His body was given for us. His blood was shed for us. And the first step in receiving that salvation that's offered is simply this. We must admit we need it. We must admit we need it. And as I was telling the children, while, while the wait was long for Christ's first return and while we continue to wait for his second return, what we don't have to wait on is salvation today. And brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that we didn't have to wait for our salvation until we had our acts together. We didn't have to wait until we had all the answers we didn't have to wait until we got our sin under control or eliminated all of those things that were binding us. We didn't have to wait until, until we cleaned ourselves up and had our acts together as if we could present ourselves before the Lord as he desires and requires. All we had to do was admit our need repent of our sin, look to faith in Jesus, call upon his name and receive the forgiveness that he offers. And it is Jesus who now presents us holy and blameless and without blemish before the throne of grace to which we can boldly approach without condemnation or fear. That's what Christmas is about. And if you aren't a Christian, the same is true. As I mentioned to the children, today is the day for salvation. Call upon him while he is near. You don't have to wait, again, to get your act together. You don't have to wait till you have all the answers. You don't have to wait till you've cleaned yourself up enough. And that until you, you don't have to wait until you get all of your sin under control. You don't have to wait until you've done all you can to clean yourself up in order to present yourself to the Lord. Admit your sin. Admit your need. Admit your sin. Repent of your sin. Look to Christ. He will make you. He will clean you. He will make you presentable to the Lord. And he will bring you before the Father. And will continue to do so. True peace is only found 
in Jesus. True peace is only found through him. And I pray that this week, as, as we leave this place and return out into the dark world in which we live, that we would go as heralds of the good news. Heralds of the good news of the gospel, that the light has come, and that the light is Jesus, and that not only as we go that we herald that truth, but that we would go and bring the light of Jesus to bear in the day-to-day, because our world desperately needs it. We all need it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.